I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I think it's something that we all carry within us. And, you know, you just, you never lose it. Like I never lost it. Yeah. I just took kind of a zigzag path to get to it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about telling stories and what do stories do? They connect us. And I think people are always looking for that connection. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam Podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Welcome back. We are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker. I'm recording this on Tuesday, and it's very, very rainy, but it's lovely. It's like 65 degrees outside, which is honestly my favorite weather. So I hope wherever it, wherever you are and whatever it's like there, that you are also having a equally good day. I particularly like this because I've just, uh, I planted a garden in the back. Uh, I just spent the weekend mulching my whole, I'm like digging the front yard out, like beginning to mulch, beginning to plant out there, um, getting some bird feeders in. And so this rain and this weather, everything's starting to bloom, which after the last stretch, it's nice to have life in the yard. Very excited today. Uh, on the program is Wanda Morris, who is fantastic. I got this whole bio in front of me. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read some of it because you're just going to hear some of it uh, come about. And honestly, you should go poke around because uh, on top of being a fantastic writer, she is uh, she's just like one of those phenomenal people. Uh, Her book, All Her Little Secrets is out everywhere now. So she's a corporate attorney. If you listen to the program, you know we have lawyers on here all the time. Uh, She's worked in legal departments for lots of Fortune uh, 100 companies. Uh, she was uh, previously the president of the Georgia chapter of the American, or no, of the Association of Corporate Counsel, and its founder of its Women's Initiative. Uh, she's an alumna of the Yale Writers Workshop. Um, she's a member of Sisters in Crime, Mystery Writers of America, and Crime Writers of Color. Uh, she lives down in Atlanta. She's a hoot, and her story is fantastic. And I really, you're gonna, you're gonna like this interview. The best part for you <coughs> is I cut out like. 25 minutes of me talking this interview was one of those like immensely long interviews and so because we would just like we were just telling stories back and forth to each other which is my favorite kind of interview but then i go back to edit it and i'm like well shit nobody you don't care you don't care about my stories nobody's here to listen to my stories so uh we've whittled that down and uh it's mostly her so you're welcome before we get to that interview i'm gonna blow through some things if you're new Stick around. If you've been around for a while, you know, pop on up to like the eight or nine minute mark. So the jam comes out every Wednesday. We need you to do two things. 
Tell your friends. Like the easiest way for us to grow this podcast, spread the word, help writers find audiences, all that stuff is for you to tell your writer friends like, hey, there's this new podcast. It's not new, but it'll be new to them. The other thing is we need you to leave reviews for us. So if you are on an iPhone or an iPad, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review there and a starred review there. Those are super, super helpful. If you don't use Apple, like me, uh, head over to our Facebook page and leave us a review in the review tab there. It's just the Downtown Writers Jam. Uh, actually, I think it's the Writers Jam. I should probably know what the name of the Facebook page is. It's the Writers Jam. Uh, all of that's super helpful. You can also head to thewritersjam.com and leave us an actual testimonial through the contact page. We use those in all of the things that we send out to people. Always helpful. While you're at thewritersjam.com, as you know, we have book reviews, uh, our bookshop link. You can buy the books of anybody who's been on the program. We got a monthly newsletter with book recommendations, podcast highlights, and stuff like that. We also have two new programs that are going to start in just a couple weeks. Jam Sessions, which is our nonfiction book uh, show. It's going to be about 20, 20 minutes deep dive into issues of that, that nonfiction writers are, are working on. And then the after party. And that's where we bring in people who've been on the show before, or, you know, new authors or emerging writers. And it's sort of a weird hybrid Q and A. You listen to the program, you know, it ain't just going to be like, here's 10 questions because I can't help myself. So that'll be on this podcast channel. So get yourself subscribed wherever you're listening to this podcast now. While you're at the site, you can also support the entire Solid Listen network. Click on the Patreon button. All kind of bonus issues, commercial-free episodes, and things like that. Also on the site, you can subscribe to the Solid Listen podcast network channel. I believe it's $4.99 a month. And you get all of our shows. I believe there's 12 now, commercial-free and before anybody else. So an easy way to keep up on all that we're doing here. Malls and Nicole have done an amazing job. I'm so happy to be on this network. It is one of the nicest places on the internet. I am probably the least nice person here. So I don't know what that tells you, but everybody else is super nice. Okay. That's our spiel. If you're new, you're about to catch up with the people that went ahead and skipped all that stuff. Thank you guys for stopping by the bunker to spend some time with us. Really appreciate it. Uh, love doing the program. Love talking to writers and love hearing from people who listen to the show and are excited to peek into the lives of authors. And now I want you to sit back and enjoy my conversation with Wanda Morris. originally from Ohio. I'm originally from Cleveland. I'm from Cincinnati. I'm from outside of Cincinnati. Ah, I'm from Cleveland. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're buddies. Um, what part of Cleveland? Eastside. Okay. And did you have brothers and sisters growing up? Yes. I'm the youngest of seven. So I had a lot of brothers and sisters. (laughs) Oh my Lord. How, what's the age range? It's gotta be big. Oh, it's huge. It's yeah. huge. My, my oldest brother, uh, rest his soul, he's passed now, but he was probably 20, maybe 21 years older than me. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. My, my mom and dad, you know, they love kids. <laughs> love something. They yeah, love love. And apparently loved each other. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, so uh, what was it like growing up? Like, what, well, what to start with? What did your parents do? Other than make babies. Uh, (laughs) Besides making babies. Uh, My mom was a nurse and my dad was a custodian. And (laughs) so what was it like? What were you like as a kid with all that? Well, you're the youngest, you said, right? Well, I'm the youngest. And so a lot of my siblings were grown and out of the house by the time, um, you know, I was growing up. And so it was really kind of me and uh, my sister who, you know, is kind of the knee baby. And she was five years older than me. So by the time I was in like middle school, high school, I was almost like an only child, which I got chided for by the older ones because they were like, she gets everything. You know, we didn't have to do that. But, you know, I think by that time, my parents were tired. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. 
So <laughs> they were like, okay, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's been so, fun. You know, they, they picked their battles with me. They, they just picked their battles with it's, me. My sister is five years older than me. And we have told people we were only children raised in the same household. Because we were far enough apart that you're never really in the same school. Yeah. And if you're different on all, she was a art person and I was a sports person. Like, even though it was a very small town, mm -hmm. you didn't really have the same friends. So what we did was sort of very separate from each other. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, That's the way we were. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of a weird experience. Like as you get old, have you gotten close with any of them later? Well, I've always been close with them. Um, it, it it was just a matter of like different interests yeah. and different things that we were focused on um, because they were at a different stage in their yeah. life, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I recall my sister who was five years older than me. Um, I think we were in the same school in elementary like, school. Yeah, like one, one time early on. Right, yeah. at one time. Yeah, so I was yeah. like in kindergarten. She was yeah. like in fifth grade or something <laughs> like that. And then, you know, so I remember us walking to school together then for maybe like a year or two. And yeah. then, you know, I was kind of on my own. So was it a big school or a little school? It was to me, it was a big school. It was, you know, a public school. But, you know, I look back now and I'm like, you know, I see schools now with thousands of students. It was nothing on that. Yeah. Order. Yeah. So that's a small school. Like, uh, so, yeah. I think my graduating class was like 155 or 60 or something like that. Like we had, and now that now it's way bigger than that. But like when I was teaching, I taught in schools with like three or 4,000 students. Cause oh before gosh. I started all of this writing stuff, I taught middle school and high school for two years. And like, I was in those schools. Like, I don't know how anybody learns. I mean, yeah, it was, exactly. it was so big. It was so crazy. And like six floors. I mean, it felt like almost like a community college. For right. And how do you learn when there are 25, 30 students in a classroom? You know, it was in classrooms where, you know, it was hard to concentrate. <laughs> um, so by the time I was ready to go off to high school, I, uh, I went to a private high school, a girl's private high school. Oh, that's good. And it was like night and day difference. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. amazing. Like it's, I am a public school advocate. My sister's teaching public school. I will always, but I get why I get why if people have the means, they go somewhere else because. And it's shameful because yes. public schools should offer kids everything that a private school does. Yeah. But I think and I won't get on my soapbox, but once you get politics into it. Yeah. It becomes a different ball game, And it's unfortunate because the people who suffer are the kids. Well, and we know what kids are suffering. Uh, yep. poor, it's poor kids and, and, and know kids kids, right they yeah. look like, like me exactly yeah. yeah yeah so what were you like as a kid oh <laughs> i was <laughs> are you I trying like to get answer. To all my secrets um but i don't think it's any big secret i was kind of the nerdy nose in a book kid um i uh tattled on my older brothers and sisters no you didn't yeah, I was that kid. Um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I fess up to it now, but um, yeah, I, I was the kind of kid that you were like, eh. <laughs> like maybe don't let her know the plan. <laughs> right, exactly. And um, my mother, uh, like I said, she was a nurse. And so she worked a three to 11 shift. Oh, man. And so, um, you know, my sister and I were latchkey kids. So yeah. we would come home and nobody was home. But I would sometimes stay up at night uh, to wait for her to get home. And, you know, she's like, so what happened today? Well, let me pull out my notebook and tell ask. you everything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> funny you should ask. Uh, uh, let's just flip the page here and go down the list. Oh, uh, man. So, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. To, we'll talk about where you are right now, but like rules and structure and things meant something to you. Definitely. Exactly. That they were put in place for a reason, right? <laughs> I mean, um, in my world, they were put in place to break. But yes, they were they were put in place for a reason. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> so do you think it was, do you know, like, why, like, do you know why you gravitated towards that structure and rules? Like, have you ever thought about, like, why was I like that? Um, I 
don't know. I think I always have. If you ask people who are into astrological signs and so forth, I think they'd say it's probably my astrological sign. I'm a Virgo. And we are very much, you know, kind of, you know, paper and pencil bullet points and, you know, outlining and plotting and so forth. Um, but I think I've always been that way. I think I'd like, um, you know, I, I, I like to think ahead. So I, I kind of, you know, like structure so that, you know, I know that I have to do this, that, or the other on yeah. a particular day. And I've kind of always been that kid. Um, even when I was very young, you know, my mother tells stories about how, you know, hey, you know, the books aren't lined up correctly or, you know, what are we going to do on the weekend? And so, you know, I was kind of like the planner. Of the yeah. Everybody can't see, but uh, our bookcases are very similar. Yeah. Like there's a every that it may look a little chaotic, but everything I got there is there for a reason and in a way for a reason. <laughs> And exactly. Look yours appears the same way. <laughs> Look at that. And my book, you know, yeah. we display. Yes. I got my Franklin planner in the mail yesterday. I had a Franklin. I don't know if you know what those are, but they're like, the I, book, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're a lawyer, so you'd at least heard of them. I've had a Franklin planner since I was in high school. Wow. <laughs> Okay, so you're, you are that kid on steroids. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I also was the other kid uh because i you know i played baseball and i was an athlete but there was this other part of me that was and i've oftentimes wondered if that is like indicative not because not every latchkey is like that but i was the youngest you'd come mm -hmm. home a lot of times and you know you'd have to sort of structure your whatever and like if you forgot something there wasn't always somebody there to bring it like so i was obsessive like when i went to school if i had a game like i checked everything the night before and the day of to make like I never really went anywhere without, even to this day, when I travel, go to New York City or something, I got a pack. And I always tell people like, this is like the mom purse. You can ask me for just about anything. And I'm like, oh, hang on. I got a bar and some water and, a, you know, <laughs> extra pair of socks and another shirt just in case and some deodorant. Like, there you just go. got everything with you. Thinking ahead. Thinking right. ahead. I don't understand people who don't. Do they drive you crazy like they drive me crazy? Not anymore because I'm married to a guy who is kind of like, you know what? That's that's going to take care of itself. It'll all work out in the wash. And you would have to be like, I yeah. do not believe people like us can marry other people like us. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. Or, it, you know, it ends that. badly in on the front page of a newspaper. <laughs> so as you get to uh as you get to like junior high and high school like where are your interests at like what are you like what's as a what's young you starting to sort of throw her stuff into um, well I've always liked to write even when I was I was a big reader I was a voracious reader as a kid I love libraries um so I was always doing that and then as I moved into high school, I, um, I, I, I loved writing, but I didn't write that much because as the youngest of seven, I was encouraged, you got to go to college and you got to, you know, work towards a real quote unquote yeah. job. Yeah. And writing was not perceived to be yeah. that. And so um, I you know, kind of squirreled away all these ideas and I've always journaled. So I was always kind of writing in different little segments of my life, but yeah. never really attacking it as like, this could be a career choice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, I mean, I've told that well, one, I've interviewed hundreds of writers and this is a very common, like, is this a job? Like, I don't think this is a job. Like I want to do it, but like, and I know when I went to college, my parents did the, uh, why don't you get a teaching degree? Like that way you can fall back on something, right? Like they needed a plan B being a writer was like, you know, for like working class people where that was like, do your hands get dirty? No. Then like, is that a job? <laughs> right. I mean, it's that's sort of the, I mean, I think that's kind of the mentality for people that come out of like the working class or people that, you know, yeah, come I from think, trade yeah, professions. It, Right, exactly. It's no disparagement on my parents. Not at all. My parents grew up during a time where yeah. 
money and resources were scarce. They grew up in the Jim Crow South. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, to have a daughter that could go to a private school and then off to college, oh, heck yeah, you, you're going to do something other than, you know, sit around, you know, pontificating and staring out the window waiting for the next great idea to drop. Yeah. So, um, you know, and like all kids, I wanted to please my parents. So I and you I also did. trust them, right? Like, I, like exactly. when my dad and mom were like, you should do this. I was like, as as even though I knew everything at 18, I was like, maybe, maybe I'm going to hedge my bet here just in case I don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, I mean, if you have a and good you relationship, probably didn't. So no, was- I didn't know anything. No, I knew nothing. It was I was about 25 years away from knowing even the first beginning of anything. I find interesting is that a lot of the creative arts are kind of perceived that way, whether yeah. it's writing or dance or what have you, it's it's not necessarily perceived as a job, but it's kind of like, oh, do you really want to do that? Don't you want to have a backup plan? You know, <laughs> and and because they are, you know, the creative arts, there's something that's, you know, it's very un- it's very emotional. And yeah. so it touches you in a place. And you know, if you're a 16 or 17 year old kid and somebody tells you, oh, you better, you know, second guess that, you know, yeah. Kind of, yeah, you know, unless you're a pretty strong kid. Now, I know some people who said, oh, yeah, I, I knew from the age I was five years old that I wanted to be a writer and I was writing books and blah, blah, blah. And I I applaud, you know, parents yeah. who encourage that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big thing. And, you know, it's funny because and again, we'll get into this in the second half of the interview, but like. Like when Stacey Abrams, when people found out she was a novelist and that she wrote romance stuff and everybody freaked out, like, how do we not know? And I'm like, one of the most interesting things that I have learned over this time is I did not know until a few years ago that there was this romance market of people who just write books like every one to two months and they have these gigantic followings. And I know there are some like writing folks who look down on that. And I'm like, that's a skill. That, that takes a long time. Totally yeah. And like, I would totally. never. Yeah. Are they going to win the national book of the year? No, but that that's just one award and one strand of one kind of writing. Like the people that can do that mm-hmm. and develop a following. I mean, if you asked me to do that, I, I could not. I couldn't even write same a page with, um, with cozies. The cozy genre. It's the same way. Oh, what's that? I don't even know what this is. What is this? What is the cozy genre? Cozies, cozy mysteries. No, they I, what is mysteries? <laughs> they are mysteries that do not have like profanity and graphic violence or sex on the page. Um, they usually have covers that are, you know, quaint and small mm-hmm. town. Um, so they're the Hallmark some, movies of uh, yeah, mysteries. exactly. Yeah. They're the Hallmark movies of yeah. books, but those writers turn out books every six to eight months, and I'm like, how do yeah. you? that that is a skill that is a great skill my my boss's sister was a lawyer i think she was a lawyer and ended up quitting her job she puts out a romance book once every four weeks and 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 makes more money than she made as a lawyer now i don't know if she's a good lawyer but like she makes more money than she did as a lawyer and you know drew sort of like slid that in one day just because i i run a university press and like i do all this stuff and i was like no 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 like in my world i don't I don't have stratas and tears. Like if you're good at the craft that you do, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, do it. Cause there's not enough people telling folks you can do this, right? It doesn't all have to be murder, mayhem, and depression. Like Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. We could have a whole nother hour. For <laughs> yeah. So as you get near the end of high school, like, are you, you're, you're writing and you're doing all this stuff. Like the plan is college. What, what do you think? Like, what's the, what's the, pl- what do you think the plan is for college before you get the there? The plan is college pre-med major and on to medical school. Okay. So you missed that mark. Yeah, that plan kind of went awry. I got to sophomore year and took organic chemistry. And That's said, the one. Yeah. I'm out. Yeah, I'm good. I'm or com is the uh, that's the killer of all med school dreams. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. And um, what college you know, did you I go don't to? think I was ever fully committed to it, though. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, it sounded good to say I'm going to college to become a doctor. Yeah. 
Um, but I don't know that my heart was really in it. And uh, so I switched majors and I became an accounting major. Uh, and what college was this? Uh, Case, I graduated from Case Western Reserve. Oh, wow. So that's a that's a good school. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good school. Uh, did you end up, oh, well, I don't want to get too far ahead because now I want to ask if that's where you went to law school. That is where I went I to was like, school. I mean, that is why I know what the school is. That's a really good law school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you make the, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and then we're going to talk because you have this wildly successful legal career, which oddly enough, I've had. I prop that's the profession that is most on this show of people that become writers. Um, right? Yeah. And so I want to talk about that and sort of what led you into uh, your first book, All Our Little Secrets. So we'll be back in just a second. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. All right. So uh, as always, we just had a wonderful conversation about things none of you are allowed to know about. Um, <laughs> but so we when we left, you're at Case Western. You are you're in med school your first year, like a million people across the country. Or, or Tom happens or Kim happens. Correction. I am not in med school. I'm in undergrad. You're pre-med. Sorry, pre-med. That's right. But yeah. but it was but as or Kim was like, nope, I'm out of here. And then you switch. Right. What? Why do you switch into accounting? Um, I think again, it was that whole, um, structure and, you know, liking numbers and planning and all those things that I enjoyed as a kid. So it just and, made sense. There's a, right. There's a exactly. So I took, yeah, I took a, an accounting course just cause I needed, you know, yeah. the three credits to fill in my schedule and, um, and I enjoyed it. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'll do this. I mean, there was nothing deep about it. Okay. Sure. Understand. There was yeah. nothing. I did not sit and wait for the stars to align. I was like, I need to graduate. I need to declare another major. Let's see. And, yeah. um, and I actually enjoyed it. Now I enjoyed it 
on a theoretical college level. Yeah. When I graduated from college and started working as an accountant. Oh, you actually did accounting? Yes, I, I worked as an accountant and it was snooze city. Yeah. I was just not cut out for that job. And I think it was because <laughs> I didn't interact enough with people. Yeah. It was kind of, you know, me and those numbers. Yeah. And, you know, I'd started out in an entry level position. So all I was doing was just crunching numbers and, you know, compiling reports. And I thought to myself, there's got to be something else in life for me to do. Like, yeah. I, I just cannot see yeah. me going into retirement doing this. And I had a friend who always told me, you talk a lot. You, you got to be a lawyer. Lawyers talk a lot. Got to law school. And I, I hope like, this is a good friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the time. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> that and, could go either way. Right. Exactly. <laughs> And I thought to myself, law school, I was like, yeah, I could see that. I, I very well could see that. And so I said, you know what? Again, I was kind of, you know, fumbling through like most 20 sure. somethings. I was kind of fumbling through trying to figure out. I knew what I didn't want to do. I yeah. knew I didn't want to be an accountant, but I couldn't figure out what exactly I did want to do. And yeah. so I did the very scientific thing of, taking the LSAT and taking the GMAT. So I said, whichever one I get a higher score on, then that's where I'm going. So I'm either going to grad school or I'm going to law school. And so I tested well on the LSAT. So I applied to law school. That's really um, fascinating that it was like- <laughs> Yeah, right. It, it was so scientific and so deeply thought out a plan, right? But I also feel like there's, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but we're in the same, we're in the same pool. And uh, at that time, particularly, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't, we were working class in this small town, like college visits and what are you going to do was not, that wasn't on a menu for home conversation. No, no, I didn't, I didn't do college visits. Yeah. I kind of, yeah, yes, yeah. the book and looked through the book and said, okay, you know, here are the stats that look good to me, but no, there was no money to yeah. do. And so you just kind of, I mean, like, I, I feel like today kids kind of come in with like, well, I've been going to science camp since I was 11. Like there's right. that thing. And I'm like, well, that's amazing. But like, yeah, I didn't really figure out what I was doing until I was about 26 or 27, mm -hmm. exactly, uh, which is when I went to graduate school. And it's like, oh, I think I want to do this. Now I need to figure out how to do this, how to do it, how to pay for it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you apply, you go it, 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 and you go back to Case Western. So I went back to Case Western because, you know, again, no it's a good law practice. school. Man. They, it's, it's a great school and they gave me money and key. I didn't have That's any. Key. Time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So I, I did three years of law school there. And uh, when I graduated, I moved here to Atlanta. Did you feel when you were in graduate school, because we talk so much about like finding your voice and find like finding that comfort zone and finding the thing where you're like, Oh yeah, this is, this is beginning to feel like me. Like when you were there, were you like, I sort of like this, this is a thing that I can, you know, put on. Yeah, I did. I, I really enjoyed it probably starting around second year, first year, I was still kind of grappling, like, yeah. mm -hmm, you know, <laughs> can I really read two, 300 pages of, you know, cases a night and yeah. you know that sort of thing but once I kind of found my legs I actually did enjoy it yeah uh, but again I was still you know relatively young I'm in my 20s and so I um I knew that I I liked the law but I wasn't quite sure like Ooh, will, will this really work out for me? <laughs> and it wasn't until I started practicing as a lawyer that I thought, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely, I like this. Yeah. Because again, I was writing, I was reading, I yeah. was writing and lawyers, you know, depending on what type of law you practice. But if you're in litigation, you're in employment law, which I primarily did, you're crafting a story. You're yeah. crafting a story around a set of facts. Now, the difference between writing as a lawyer and writing as a novelist are very different because as a novelist, I get to create the facts. I get to create the world. 
But as a lawyer, I just have, you know, kind of this set of facts and that's, that's what I have to work with, but I'm still having to create a story, whether I'm trying to, you know, create or to convince a jury or um, create a client that I'm working with in-house. So I really enjoyed it because it gave me an opportunity to tap into that, what I really enjoy. Were you still like journaling and doing all that stuff or did law school begin? So that was still like story was, that was, that's what I mean. Like you were beginning to create a life into which, Mm -hmm. even though it may not have been novel writing, like story writing, words, the language are all the driving forces of what you're doing. Exactly. Exactly. I didn't know back then that, yeah, I want to write a book. I knew that I liked to write and I didn't know what format because originally I started trying to write nonfiction and, um, well, that's a whole other story. (laughs) That did not work out because it was just like, yeah, nah, that's not going to work. But you know, I didn't know. Yeah, I want to. I want to write a book. I didn't figure out I wanted to write a book until um, till later. Yeah, actually. I mean, it, you know, I was a magazine journalist, and much of what we did was exactly what you just described, right? Is that even when I was doing my long form books, is there's a set of facts, and I think one of the most interesting parts that I've learned about storytelling over the years is that. And we, we, that's why John and I, my writing partner and I always call whatever we do a story of, not the story of. Because I'm like, facts aren't a story. Facts are just a series of events. The lens through which you view those facts and the order through which you find the importance of those facts changes fundamentally what the story is. And so, exactly. to, be, and so to believe there's one story mm-hmm. is crazy, pants. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy because... Two or three different people can look at that set of facts and see something totally different. And even see the events differently, right? Even the individual things. Like I I used to show my magazine students when I was a teacher, The Invisible Gorilla, and uh, which is this thing where you're watching kids throwing a basketball and then a gorilla walks through the middle of them, but you're counting the basketball, right? And and, Mm -hmm. and like 85% of the people miss the gorilla. And I'm like, like, so any gorilla. Yeah, I'm like, anytime you tell me this is what I saw, I'm like, that does not mean that's what happened. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, so you have to sort of take all that. And as a nonfiction writer, that becomes really, and I'm assuming as a lawyer, that becomes really difficult because you're like, you know, yeah, the events are the events, but the story is not necessarily what you think, even if you think yours is the one that makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Indeed. So did that frustrate you as you were doing this? Like as you were lawyering, like as you were sort of getting into this, like, oh man, this is, I don't have control over all of this. No, not at all. I, you know, you, you bloom where you're planted. So I, uh, so I, you know, I, I took what was good from that and, you know, I used it to my advantage. Now, you know, later as I became a lawyer, um, and I always done primarily um, labor and employment law. So I'm always working with issues around discrimination and civil rights. And so the um, easy stuff that doesn't make anybody. Yeah, yeah right. The, yeah. the stuff that doesn't have any gray. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I would uh, I would work on certain cases um, or certain initiatives where, you know, I saw you know, what I perceived and somebody else saw, you know, going back to what you're yeah. saying, like what they saw and the two were so vastly different. And I would sometimes grow frustrated in trying to help people understand um, just basic fairness that, you know, you can see a certain set of facts or you can interpret a certain set of facts, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily fair or right. just. Right. Or equity, uh, equitable. That's the or thing, too, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think, too, that's what a, law, a lot of lawyers have to deal with, too, is that you, you know, you can come down to some answer that's legal. But does that mean it's right? Right. That's what I mean by the frustrating, right? Like, because mm-hmm. in a novel, you get to at the end of the day, you get to shape the story the way you want to. And in that in the real world, that pool isn't always as controllable, right? Like, you know, somebody decides that their lens is the important lens. 
and it sort of depends on where they are in the structure as to what like what happens yeah particularly in this day and age in our political culture although i don't know if it was i mean i, I mean i know it's polarized today but i sort of feel like not like we got a lot in the history where we're like, well, that was a time when people were more open to this kind of stuff. No, I got to <laughs> tell you, I tend to agree with you there. I wonder, though, if if we, we're polarized now, but in some respects, we're a lot less civilized about it. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, like I can only speak through the life the time I've been around and aware of that. But yeah, like in that time that I've been around and aware of it. In the sixties, mm -hmm. I mean, like there seems to be some times in life where, like, there was a pretty violent polarization going on, mm -hmm. and it Very feels nice. like we're it feels like we're about to be we'll in another one of those. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. I think people uh, who, you know, I think people stoke that fear. Let's just put it that way. I mean, yeah, we we know who you're talking about. <laughs> 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 yeah, and I feel like that's gotten more blatant. Diplomatic here, buddy. Yeah, you can be. I, I if you've not listened to the show, but I uh, I name names because I can, right? Like, um, yeah, I mean Trump, Holly, like all those people. Like, like I they said, like fear. I grew yeah. up around. I mean, I grew up in a in, in what had what I used to tell people was a traditional Republican place where we disagreed, but also, and I'm not saying that they were always right and and good about stuff, but there was a it was different it was there was not a you're my enemy and must be destroyed it was not i'm going to go to the school board and call you a fascist because you want to teach that like white structures in america have kind of fucked black and brown people like that doesn't feel like uh like that should be controversial because it literally is the history right like like that just was not where i grew up and i see this stuff now even in the place where i grew up and i'm like well this is uh, how do you like I don't know how you come back from that. And then I talk to people like Mental and other folks that are working in this and they're like, here's what you need to do. Like, you don't call them dumb. Like you, Brad, have to go down and sit and find out what their fear is and mm -hmm. then work through the fear, you know? And, I'm, and I keep telling people like, that's the work. When they tell white people what the work is, I'm like, that's the work, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Like, exactly like yeah <laughs> i know your listeners can't see my face but <laughs> like it ain't me, gonna be good look. yeah it ain't gonna be good so it's not gonna be good it's not gonna end well for no. anyone no anyone. yeah and it's always crazy too because you look at like every time you like not to go back to like rome but i've also just had some like historians on and i'm like yeah we know every empire gets destroyed from within within everyone like that's literally there's not a time that the like somebody else destroys them or if they do it's because they've already crumbled everything inside i'm like come on guys like i know we don't like history but a book not or two will be good from it at least <laughs> yeah like or be aware don't even if you don't learn just be aware <laughs> just be aware yeah okay i'll take that yeah, yeah this is my michael che it's my michael che like ah, let's just start with the most basic like be aware <laughs> of it before we learn from it like let's just know what happened so let's acknowledge it <laughs> yeah. uh we're laughing because the only other thing to because do because we want to cry <laughs> yeah and yeah um so how like at what point in the sort of law because you're doing like you don't just you don't just legal like you you really get into like the work that you're doing like you are involved you create what was it you created the uh the women's initiative initiative yeah you were weren't you the you were the president of the georgia chapter of corporate council like corporate yeah council. Mm -hmm. so like you're doing stuff you're not just like kind of a lawyer <laughs> no i'm not kind of a lawyer <laughs> but that's kind of my personality you know you go all in um but yeah so um working in uh these corporate structures i got a firsthand look at um you know how you know women and people of color isn't they suffer at the very hands of those people that you spoke of just a few yeah. minutes ago the folks who are at the top you know have a certain they tend to look and sound like me <laughs> exactly yeah um so um when i uh was able to uh assume roles and positions of power where i could do something i tried to do something and um 
that's what I did with the uh, Association of Corporate Counsel. So um, during my presidency, we founded the Women's Initiative, which uh, was designed to have a series of programs and workshops and events that would all um, contribute to women empowering themselves through their careers. So whether it was speakers or um, like I said, workshops or something, but it was all tied to how do I find success within the corporate structure? Yeah. And the only requirement is that if you got something out of it, then you had to lift up another woman. Um, so yeah, it was, and it, the, the program is still in place now, um, nearly 10 years. Yeah. And, and so things like that, having started stuff before i know like the and not only analogously i know like the heavy lifting that it must have been to get that started to get into that position that takes a lot like that's energy outside of what you're doing that's energy outside exactly. of the yeah. job that you're doing this so was a volunteer yeah this was yeah. a volunteer organization and the pushback that we got to <laughs> in trying to do this no no, was no everybody was supportive yeah. <laughs> well, not so much. <laughs> yeah, it, it was just crazy. It's like, well, here we go again, yeah. separating out the, the boys from the girls. Yeah. Someone literally said that to me. Um, you know, I'm assuming it was a boy that said that to you. <laughs> it was a boy. Yeah. Um, it was a white boy. Yeah, no, we know we know exactly who said that to you. <laughs> Because they don't so, see they don't see color or gender, and you're like, right, oh, exactly, what are you talking exactly. about? And it's just kind of <laughs> like, well, okay, if you don't think we need this, tell me how many women do you have in your executive and leadership roles at your company? And then that's where all the gagging and the backpedaling and well, but you yeah. know, we treat everybody fair. And I'm like, no, you're not treating everybody yeah. fair. If you don't have women that you know are sitting on your boards or sitting in your executive suites, you're not treating everybody. Yeah. If you don't have black and brown people and disabled people sitting in your executive suites and on your boards, you're not treating everybody yeah. fair. I don't even want to hear it. Yeah. So yeah, we got some pushback, but <laughs> I had some really strong women behind me who, you know, rallied behind yeah. the effort and, you know, as women typically do, we get it done. Yeah. So you, you don't just, uh, you know, Put a black woman, you know, in a situation or you know, put a brown person somewhere yeah. and say, I've done my job. Because what happens is you have to put people in roles and then you have to help them succeed. Yes. And if you are putting them in these roles where they have no allies, they have no sponsors, um, they have no one to rally behind them the way, you know, the white boys have always done. They've yeah. always taken each other under their wings yeah. and, you know, made sure that their career was on a trajectory for success. And so to say, I put this one person in this role and my job is done is, I'd say det as detrimental as it is not to have put them in the yeah. role at all in the first place. Yeah. It really is a matter, it's a more holistic approach, I think, that, yeah. you know, organizations need to take. You don't just look and say, where are we lacking in this? But also, where can we champion, you know, people? Where can we come to the table and bring others with us? And where can we do the hard work? Yeah. And sometimes I don't think organizations, for whatever their reasons, whether it's resources, cost money, what have you, I don't think they're always willing to put in the work. No, no. You know, I was reading a Fortune article, you know, a few months back, and there's something like 3% of executive you know, management in Fortune 500 is black. What, like, how in the world do you expect to see and address the issues of your diverse customer base? Right. If you're sitting at the very top of the organization and making decisions and you have nobody that looks like your customers. Um, and and so you heard- You've heard this, like when people are like, we hire the best candidate. And I'm <sighs> like, I know, right? I know. 
I know. Did you read that in my book? Thinking about the best is just a way that you reinforce a culture that already exists, right? It's That's what that means, is that anything that doesn't fit this culture that we've defined is not the best. It's insane to me. It is. It is. <laughs> I remember when I was interviewing um, at my third year in law school, and it was like, you know, the firms, the the silk stocking firms didn't want to look at you if, you know, you didn't come from Harvard, yeah. you came from Howard University Law School, you know, it was like nobody was going to those schools. I think that has certainly changed now because people recognize that there's talent at all these schools. But yeah, for a moment, it was like nobody was looking at graduates unless they were coming out of Harvard or Yale. Yeah. And it's like, well, that ain't what you want to do if you're trying to make your workplace equitable and, and yeah. forward thinking. So at what point do you like doing all this stuff? Like at what point, because writing a novel is not for the faint of heart. All right. That no. is, a, that is, yeah, yeah. It's time and investment and a lot of like, why am I doing this? Yeah. So when so, do you, what, what, what's the impetus for you? I think that <laughs> I, I go back at the real impetus. I was reading a book. I will not name the book or the author. Uh -oh. Um, and <laughs> well, you know how the story goes. I do. <laughs> I read the book and I want to throw the damn thing against the wall. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? My six-year-old could write a book better than was this, this a new but book? Was this like a book of the times? It was a very popular book okay. at All the right. time. I will not I will not ask any other questions about that. Because <laughs> I will not answer them. Um, but you're a lawyer and I'm a journalist, so here's where we write heads. <laughs> exactly. So I was like, no. But I, you know, I read that book and I was like, you know, I could, I could do this. And then I, of course, put that idea away. But then I started. <laughs> but did thinking, you put it away? <laughs> yeah, right. Did I? I don't think I did. Right. Because it eventually it showed up. Because I think I kept noodling in the back of my yeah. mind. Yeah, maybe I ought to go back to that. Yeah. And so I. You know, I in 2008, so it's been like 13 years. Yeah, that's about how long it takes. Yeah, I, I started writing the first draft of All Her Little Secrets. And back then it was called, um, boom, well, originally it was called Nothing. Yeah. I couldn't think of a title. And then I came up with, you know, what I considered a stroke of brilliance, um, The Elephant Fighter. So it used to be called The Elephant Fighter. And I started this book and I probably wrote about, 70, 75% of the book. Because when I write, I don't always know how the book is going to sure. end. And then I put the thing away because I said to myself, nobody is going to want to read a book about a Black woman in her 40s dealing with some really awful people in this really toxic environment. And then I also think I put it away because I just didn't believe that my writing was very good. Mm -hmm. And so I put it away for seven years. Holy moly. Yeah, I, I didn't touch it. And then I had a health scare um, about six years ago and I got through it, but I started thinking like, what do I do that really gives me joy? Like, what am I doing for myself yeah. that pleases me, that makes me feel good? And so I was like, I'm going to write. And I pulled that book back out and I read it again and it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we call them drafts. Oh God, it stunk up the place. It was bad, bad, bad. Um, but that was okay because I knew yeah. I could have been bad better. Mm -hmm. And so- Was there something I, in it that you saw where you're like, this is the story? Like I haven't, this other yes. not there, yeah. Yes, it was the characters. Yeah. It was Elise Littlejohn, who is the protagonist of the story, and her brother Sam and her kind of mother figure, Vera. And I had always loved those characters. And so when I picked it up again and I looked at it, the writing was bad, but I loved who the characters were in my mind. And so I started taking, you know, writing courses after work. So like I go through a full day of work and then I go over to Emory University and I was taking a creative writing course. So you like went to school, school, like just yeah. like one off classes, right? 
it, so I was doing whatever I could online classes. I joined, but I mean, you weren't trying to get a degree, right? Or were you? No, trying no, 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 no. So you were no. just taking whatever class you're like, this will help me. Whatever this class, will help me. Yeah. right? So if it was a class on characterization or it was a class <laughs> on structure or something, and then I, um, <laughs> I applied to Yale Writers Workshop. I gotten up. Enough. Why did you just laugh before you said that? <laughs> because my writing still stunk, but I was like. <laughs> I'm I'm going to publish this thing because uh-huh. I think these characters are really good but the writing was still still crappy I thought. Yeah. Um and so I applied but I got in and I was like oh crap. And then I figured I better oh, tell why oh crap. Because I had not told anyone that I was writing a book. Nobody. Nobody. Not even not even my husband. Um, so nobody knew I was writing. I was writing this in secret. I know. Yeah, I always get that look. Yeah. <laughs> People look at me like, what? Yeah. Like, no, I didn't. I didn't tell. So you family. really thought what you were doing was terrible. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Cause you do not seem like the kind of person that is like, I am not going to talk about my ambitions. <laughs> I mean, I know we just met, but I'm taking a guess right here. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So that's yeah, a big I, deal I that you don't do it. That's a big deal that like you really did not think you could do this. I, I didn't. I didn't know where it would go. I, I I was doing it. I knew I was doing it. I just didn't know whether it could actually become like the book that sits behind me on my shelf. How do you get to Emory and your husband not know what you're doing? I do it in the evenings. And so but I'm you didn't like, say, oh, like, I'm didn't ask, like where are you going? So, yeah, no, 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 no. But I would do it like when he was traveling. So, yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had this all planned out. So, Holy shit. <laughs> we've learned a thing about you now. <laughs> you know, yeah, I know. Cause he asked me, he's like, so you, you've written a book when I told him, cause I had to tell him now, see, this was different. When I was going to Yale, I had to tell him because I'd be away for two weeks. So he had to take care of the kids. Yeah. So that time I did tell him and I was, so was this like, like a, like a low residency thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I told him, I was like, so look, I, I'm going up to Connecticut and you know, and he's like, why are you going to Connecticut? Yeah, for two that's weeks? a question. He thought it was like travel for work. He's like, where are you going for two weeks? And I was like, so I like wrote this book and he's like, you wrote a book. What? <laughs> it was like, yeah. And he's like, so what's it about? And I told him and he's like, Ooh, that sounds good. Good for him. And that was kind of like confirmation that it was yeah. maybe on the right track. I mean, that in Yale. <laughs> I mean, like both of those are pretty good confirmation. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Okay. But it's so interesting though. I got so much rejection with this book because I did think, Oh yeah. Okay. I could do this, but I uh, query because I knew I wanted to be traditionally published. So I was trying to get an agent and I was sending out query letters and they were going into black holes and the ones that didn't go into black holes, they were so form letter that I was just like, I don't even, you know, they all started off the same way. Yeah. And, um, but I kept at it. And, um, and then I, I, um, I went to Thriller Fest. Well, to start, I went to Thriller Fest back in like 2016, which is a conference held in New York City every year for mystery and, and thriller writers. And I entered the best first sentence contest and I was selected and they loved my first sentence. And so I was like, yeah, I could do this. So I queried some more and I got some more rejection. And then I applied and got into Pitch Wars, which is an online mentoring um contest and i got in oh and you got I, in through pitch wars i got in through pitch wars and i was like i'm getting an agent now so i worked with this lovely author named wendy Hurd, and during the agent showcase i got all this response and people were like oh my gosh send me this book it sounds so great and i sent it to them and they all rejected it <laughs> Look, every time you think the story is going to go up you're like and i got hit in the face with a two bottle there you go i got rejected by every single one and we're talking like over 20 agents and i was just like oh my gosh so by this point i think i had nearly exhausted every mystery and thriller agent or agent who represented my genre 
But I went back to Thriller Fest and I said, I'm putting this book away again and I'm never touching it if I don't get an agent. And I pitched and I sat down in front of this lovely woman named Lori Galvin of Avita's Creative Management. And she said, that sounds really good. Send it to me. And I sent it to her. And 24 hours later, she sent me back an email and she said, I am loving the elephant fighter. And she signed me up. It's and... we knew it was going to end well because you're like, here's her full name and the whole place she works. <laughs> like, like, oh, this I, is always, the land. I always give my I always give my agent a plug because she is fantastic. But yeah, it, it did end well. And like they say, it only takes one. Yes. So yeah. And everybody know. that I interview, I mean, almost without exception. I mean, the joke I always make is it takes your whole life to write your first book, but really it takes about 10 years from the first time you put a word on the page. I've just, I've heard that number from yeah. almost every author. And, you know, I tell people that aren't writers because, you know, you get the question like, well, how, like, how do you know when you're a writer? And I tell people when you've revised and if you read, anybody can do a first draft. It's the right. fifth draft that is, that's when you become a professional writer like even if you're not published because you're literally going through and trying to make the writing what you want it to be and that takes a long time the first time you do it you know I heard said I were a glass or someone who said you know you have to learn good taste and it's the same thing with writing you have to learn what sounds good like what is a good book and the only way you can do that is like you said you have to read yeah. you have to read books and good books bad books because they'll all teach you what a good book is I mean my throwing that book against the wall all those years ago was you know my first step into this because I realized this is not what a good book is or at least for me and for right. my taste right um, because again it's all subjective but yeah you have to read and you have to write and the only way that you get better at writing is to keep writing. Yeah. Um, it sounds simplistic, but it's, it's awful. so true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's the worst. And, you know, the other thing I tell young people early in their career is that just because you finished, when you finish a novel the only or a book, the only thing you've learned is that you can finish a book. Because mm -hmm. the next time you sit down to do it, the process is going to be different. You just sort of know... Now I know a few ways to get through this, but there'll be whole new problems that you got to deal with. Oh my gosh, yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I've just finished up my second book and it was still like going back to the drawing board and yeah. sitting at the desk for the very first time. I was just kind of like, oh gosh, well, these characters are, you know, yeah. they're terrible, you know, what do I do? <laughs> so yeah, it's still very much the same thing every time you do it. Yeah, so, it's, it's terrible because like, you know, you think if you do something like I'm going to get better at it and like I'm objectively better as a writer today than I was 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. But when I start to write an essay, I'm still like, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> like, I don't know how this is going to work out. Like, I think it will. I trust that it will. Uh, and I trust that if it's not, I can just be like, well, I'm just going to delete that and not tell anybody <laughs> that shit happened. <laughs> Although you don't delete it, right? Like there's just a Google Drive folder of like- Right, there's a folder there. Yeah. And that's the one that like, if you die, like my writing partner knows like delete that file. I don't care what other kind of weird stuff people find. What I can't have them have is like 40 years of bullshit that I've not published because it's awful. Oh God, it's awful. And it's crazy. People are going to be like, this is a crazy person. <laughs> well, when I picked up that first draft all those years ago, after I put it away, names change character names change well who the heck is paula oh like, in the middle of the book the name in the middle of the book the names had changed and then it was like why are they standing in you know church on a thursday morning <laughs> what in the world are you doing here it, it, it stopped somebody somebody tweeted the other day that they did a find and replace like they changed the character's name and the character's name was like cat c-a-t and they and so they did a find and replace well imagine every word that has c-a-t in the middle of it <laughs> <laughs> so now every word that was like replicate is now like repla aaron e <laughs> and i'm like that is a first draft mistake like that is something people yeah. are like oh shit yeah i didn't really think 
I didn't do cap lock. I didn't, or like, you know, exact phrase. Yeah, rookie mistake there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Twitter was ablaze with like, well, here's all the dumb stuff I did the first time I wrote a book. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, Juana, you are so charming and so lovely, and I appreciate you spending an hour with me. Um, All her little secrets, it literally just came out, yeah? Yes, November 2nd, so it's just about a week and a half old, yeah. Oh man, that's exciting. Are you going to get to do anything in person? I, I, yes, I will have my first in-person event next month with a local bookseller here, 44th and 3rd Booksellers here in Atlanta. And I'm so, so, so excited because, you know, it's been the dream, you know, yeah. yes, I'll sit and, you know, I'll sign books and, and all this stuff and, and the pandemic had other plans. So yeah. Yeah, I'm very excited about that next month. It really is sort of the end. Like it's the thing that as an author, you get to go, okay this is now yours. Like I've done the thing, you know, and you can put it behind you. It's a symbolic metaphorical, like, and even though the project was over a year ago for you, mm -hmm. right? Like exactly. like, exactly. But it just, yeah, it was kind of like, oh, I was really hoping to do, but I am happy to, to eat this out. And if we're sitting six feet apart, masked up, I, you know, I'm just happy to be in the place. Right talking about all her little secrets that is so. amazing well thank you very much and uh when the second one comes out i hope we can do this again i would love to you've been absolute joy to <laughs> and uh, I, like next time i come down your way i might have to swing through atlanta so i can find out what that book is i know over a drink you'll tell me i wish you would i i <laughs> I, I, I tell you what drinks on you i'll tell you that, that is a deal Well, good people, there you have it. That was Wanda Morris. I told you, she's fascinating. Uh, and you can best believe I'm going to be getting my ass down to Atlanta and buying that drink and finding out that story and not sharing it with any of you. But you can pick up all her little secrets, which is out right now. Before we get out of here, a couple reminders. If you like what you heard today, do us those two favors I talked about at the top of the show. Tell your book-loving friends about us. And leave us a review. So important. If you have an iPad or an iPhone, head over to Apple Podcasts. If not, head to Facebook at the Writer's Jam under the Reviews tab. All of that is super helpful for people finding us. Don't forget to check out all the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. Remember, for I think it's $4.99, you can subscribe to our Apple channel, and get all 12 of the shows commercial free and before anybody else. We also have two new programs on this channel. Jam Sessions, which is our nonfiction book podcast. And After Party, which is our weird-ass hybrid Q&A. And the jam comes out every Wednesday. The best way to not miss anything we do, get subscribed wherever you are listening to podcasts. Like, for instance, right now. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Till the next time. I'll see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.